0: Hello everyone, and welcome to DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. My name is Drew Ray, but a lot of today's episode has been put together by my colleague George Desparto. There's a fine line between confidence and stupidity. In the 1970s, the London Ambulance Service tried to implement a computer-aided dispatch system and failed because they couldn't get the system's users to support the change. In the late 1980s they tried again, but the system couldn't cope with the expected load. Clearly, implementing a system of this sort involved significant managerial and technical challenges. What better way to handle it then, than to appoint a skeleton management team and saddle them with an impossible delivery timetable? The call went out to the best and brightest, the champions of the commercial IT software world. They all took one look at the specification and the proposed timetable, then cowered in terror. One brave young heroic company, though, stepped forth and embraced the challenge. There's a reason why you're supposed to review the technical content of tenders, not just the compliance table. Maybe, of all the tenderers, there was one company that could achieve the impossible. Or maybe they just didn't understand the problem enough to realise how hard it was. George will give you the full story, followed by a more general discussion about the challenges and safety issues for connecting up technology and healthcare. First, though, let's have a talk about travel risk assessment and one particular unexpected journey. At my place of work, we have an insurance policy which requires filling out a travel risk assessment before any overseas business trip. You may have had similar experiences, either specifically with travel or with other work activities. Possibly, like me, you've questioned the value of these activities. Maybe you've noticed that most people, most of the time, don't actually do anything different as a result of the risk assessment. You record things that you were already planning to do anyway, agonise a little over the somewhat arbitrary severity and likelihood categories, and file or submit the document as a meaningless piece of make-work. If you're really unlucky, someone at your business has noticed that risk assessments are not actually changing behaviour, so they've made a rule that every risk assessment must include at least three new actions. This sort of rule doesn't have its intended effect. It generates a lot of very small actions, many of which were going to be done anyway but are now formally documented and tracked as actions, and now everyone is really annoyed at the paperwork. This sort of situation frustrates me, because as a risk professional I understand that good risk assessment processes do make the world a safer place. Forcing people to do meaningless risk assessments is a self-reinforcing spiral of doom, though. We see no value, so we create risk assessments with no value, so we see no value. Between sessions at a conference in Helsinki last year, a Canadian policy advisor gave me the answer. His advice was this. Do the risk assessment backwards, starting with the options you're willing to take. Work out what variables you're willing to change based on risk information and what you're not willing to change. By collecting information to help make specific decisions, you're focusing your efforts and attention on risks that will actually cause you to change your behaviour. As an example, let's conduct a risk assessment together for the journey documented in The Hobbit, also known as There and Back Again, or if you've only seen the movie, An Unexpected Journey. The Hobbit is, in my opinion, the most readable of Tolkien's work. It's heavy on the action-adventure and light on the Elvish poetry. In case you've yet to encounter The Hobbit, I highly recommend the BBC audio play version. The basic plot is that a group of 13 dwarves, led by Thorin, set out on a long journey to confront the dragon who pillaged and now lives in Thorin's homeland, the Kingdom Under the Mountain. They take with them a wizard called Gandalf the Grey, and a hobbit, Bilbo, who has been recommended by Gandalf. It's never entirely clear what they planned to do once they reached the mountain, since they had no way to actually kill the dragon. As events unfold, they wake the dragon, who embarks on a rampage and is killed by an archer from nearby Lake Town. The elves, humans and dwarves then confront each other over the dragon's treasure, which once belonged to the dwarves, but has only been rescued with the help of elves and humans. Their differences are resolved by the hobbit, just in time to defeat an army of orcs and goblins, which appears for no other apparent purpose than to avoid an anticlimax. Don't worry, the storytelling is much better than the plot. Imagine that, before setting out, the dwarvish bureaucracy had required them to conduct a travel risk assessment. Clearly, this was a high-risk expedition, since it resulted in the waking of a dragon, the destruction of Lake Town the deaths of three of the expedition members, and the finding of the One Ring, setting in chain a path of events that would almost destroy Middle-earth. I probably should have given a warning that this article contains spoilers. We don't need a risk assessment, though, to tell us that this is a high-risk journey, and it would be pretty pointless if that's all our risk assessment did. Nothing's going to stop the dwarves trying to reclaim their birthright, So a risk assessment that tries to stop them is just a waste of time. So instead, let's ask ourselves what policy decisions might be influenced by a risk assessment. We might be willing to change who we take along. We might be willing to change what we take with us. We might change the route that we'll travel. A risk assessment might help us understand what information we need. And we might set up contingencies, such as rescue services. In short, the risk assessment is an input into our journey planning. I did a quick Google search for travel risk assessment, interested not in the processes, but in the reasons people give as to why you should do the assessment. Answers ranged from giving no reason at all, and just saying the risk assessment has to be done, Saying, because the Health and Safety at Work Act says so. Saying, you should do the risk assessment because policy requires it. Because the organisation has a duty of care. Saying, you should do it to ensure safety and eliminate risks. And, bingo, to assist you in your planning processes. Congratulations go there to the University of Sussex Risk Assessment Policy. We have a range of options available to us on how to systematically perform the assessment. In this case, we're going to follow a scenario approach, working through the situations likely to be encountered, ranging from the expected to the merely possible. Let's start with what these dwarves will definitely be doing. They'll be riding ponies for many consecutive days. They'll be camping overnight in improvised accommodation. They'll be preparing food and they'll be negotiating with landowners on the way. Riding ponies carries risks of falls, bites, and chronic saddle injuries. Since this will make up a large part of what they're actually doing, priority should be given to safe, comfortable riding equipment. Injuries are pretty likely anyway, so they should carry appropriate first aid, and make sure that multiple party members are trained in first aid. Since these are dwarves, they aren't necessarily going to let you know that they've been injured, particularly if the injury is embarrassing. So we'll need to build medical inspections into our travel routine. If we've got ponies, we also have the risk of no ponies. This could be quite sudden, so we need to pack so that we don't put all the food or medical equipment onto one or two of the ponies. We'll need to carry packs so that we can transfer our supplies if we need to leave the ponies behind. Camping overnight requires good planning, but the risk assessment isn't going to tell us much that we don't already know. It's worth considering the extremes of weather we might encounter, and how we'll handle loss or breakage of camping equipment. Since we don't know in advance where we'll be camping, our risk assessment might establish some basic rules, such as when to stop each day, what are the standard precautions and procedures for establishing camp? And what's the policy for approaching strange campfires? A prearranged set of signals for escaping, in the event that this policy breaks down, isn't a bad idea either. Preparing food is an activity that should cause us to reflect on the makeup of our expedition. Do we have any special dietary or medical needs? Do we need to carry spare supplements or medication? or pre-arrange authorisation so we can obtain more. At this point, our dwarves will be looking suspiciously at a dwarf called Bomba, who is as fat as any other two dwarves put together. If they pay attention to his food needs whilst they're planning the journey, they won't be looking at him later as a possible answer to their own food needs. Negotiating with landowners is an area where good risk assessment can definitely help the company must pass through the territory of Trolls, Elrond, the Goblins, Bjorn the Bear Man, the Elf King, and Laketown. With the benefit of hindsight, we know that the presence and advice of Gandalf the Wizard is going to be invaluable in dealing with some of these. Whenever he's absent, the dwarves are going to find themselves in trouble. This is where a glib approach to risk assessment could let the dwarves down. It's all very well to say, we'll manage political risk by bringing a wizard. But what if the wizard isn't available? What if, as wizards are wont to do, he wanders off somewhere else? If the solution is bring a wizard, then the risk assessment should include temporary loss of the wizard as well. Actually, the dwarves did have this one covered. Their contingency plan for missing wizard emergencies was to bring a hobbit as well. As any genre-savvy dwarf knows, hobbits never die on stage in Tolkien's works. Stick close to the hobbit, and you'll be fine. Boromir from Lord of the Rings might tell you that's not a perfect plan, but it is fairly reliable. At the very least, being close to a hobbit will give you a chance to say some dramatic last words before you die. There were other, less risky options available to them, though they could have varied the route to minimise the risk. These sorts of options are trade-offs. Some routes had more physical threats such as mountains, some routes were longer with the risk of running out of supplies, and other routes had various hostile parties. Wherever you have trade-offs, some form of quantified or semi-quantified risk assessment can provide useful input. Measure the risk, measure the benefit, and choose the optimal path. So far we've covered the expected activities, but any high-stakes expedition is going to encounter the unexpected as well. Most of these threats are going to be living, so it's worth breaking out the Middle-Earth bestiary as part of the risk assessment process. Goblins, trolls, spiders, warg... The great thing about fantasy monsters is that a little bit of information goes a long way. Elvish weapons glow blue in the presence of goblins, Trolls turn to stone in daylight. Spiders have vulnerable eyes. Arming each member of the expedition with knowledge and equipment to counter the most likely threats is a useful outcome from sensible risk assessment. We need to prepare for things going badly, too. Here, the benefit of risk assessment is it can tell us what the worst case looks like. Mountains? Remote localities? Goblins? Okay, we need to be ready for aerial medivac. Let's pre-arrange some eagles who owe us a favour or two, and make sure we have a way of contacting them. Dark forests and elvish kings? Well, our eagles aren't going to be much use here. If we don't have a land-based rescue arranged, we might find ourselves in the ridiculous situation of escaping by stuffing ourselves into empty wine barrels. As usual, recognising the risk is most of the problem. Once you realise that you might be captured and need rescue, the logical solution is to split your party into two mutually supporting groups with a reliable means of communication. If one group is captured, the other can mount a rescue. The end goal of all this risk assessment is to make the journey as boring as possible. For the first three chapters of the book, instead of singing Dwarvish songs and trashing Bilbo's Hobbit Hole, The dwarves should be discussing the possible threats and making sure they're equipped with suitable ways of avoiding, coping, or escaping from the threats. Their new risk assessment has told them to bring a wizard, which they were planning to do anyway, and a hobbit, which they weren't. They'll interrogate the wizard on likely allies and enemies along the path, and the best way to handle each. They'll redistribute their packing, add a few extra items and leave Bomber behind. They'll establish some daily procedures for setting up camp and managing health. They'll march in two separate groups, and make sure each group has a way of contacting the other and the eagle medivac. They'll adjust their travel route to minimise dangers and uncertainties. It will still be an exciting tale, because whilst the journey is the point of the novel, it isn't the goal of the dwarves, the dwarves are interested in the destination, which contains a dragon. There's a bit of a paradox in any risk assessment, which is that the biggest risks may not actually be under your control. When you're travelling in a foreign country, the biggest threat to your life is probably a car accident, and there's not much you can do about it. The biggest threat to the dwarves was the dragon, but their best hope was to focus on the risks they could control, those associated with the journey, and leave the dragon to someone else.
1: According to the incident report, the London Ambulance Service was the biggest system of its kind in the world, covering a geographical area of over 600 square miles, servicing resident population of 6.8 million people and which population was greater during daytime, especially in central London, carrying over 5,000 patients every day and receiving two 2,000 to 2,500 calls daily of which 1,300 to 1,600 calls were emergency calls. At the time the service was operating manually. There are three main stages during operation call taking, resource identification and resource mobilization. When a 999 or urgent call is received, the control assistant writes down the call details on a pre-printed form. The incident location is identified from a map book together with a map reference coordinates. On completion of the call the incident form is placed into a conveyor belt system with other forms from fellow control assistants. The conveyor belt then transports the form to the central collection point within the central ambulance control. Another central ambulance control staff member collects the forms on the central collection point and through reviewing the details on the form decides which resource allocator should deal with it based on three London divisions. At this point, potential duplicated calls are also identified. The resource allocator then examines the forms for his or her sector and using status and location information provided through the radio operator and noted on forms for each vehicle, decides which resource should be mobilized. This resource is then also recorded on the form which is passed to a dispatcher. The dispatcher will telephone the relevant ambulance station if that is where the resource is, or will pass mobilization instructions to the radio operator if the ambulance is already deployed. This whole process should take no more than 3 minutes according to the standards at the time. There are some obvious deficiencies with a totally manual system. Examples include Identification of the precise location can be time consuming due to often incomplete or inaccurate details from the caller, and the consequent need to explore a number of alternatives through the map books. The physical movement of paper forms around the control room is an efficient means of passing information and control messages as it is time-consuming and forms may be lost. Maintaining up-to-date vehicle status and location information relied on reports from ambulances as relayed to and through the radio operators is a slow and very intensive process. Communicating with ambulances one at a time via voice is time-consuming and, at peak times, can also lead to queues. Identifying duplicated calls relies on human judgment and memory. Thinking about the shortcomings of the manual system makes the potential benefits of a computer-aided dispatch system evident. For example, think about eliminating the time needed for forms to be moved and the dispatch queue by implementing an instant messaging system. Additional benefits from a computer-aided dispatch system are even easier to realize today. Accurate automatically generating map locations based on the f- telephone number records, could further improve performance, and reduce inaccuracies that could result in ambulance crews arriving at nearby locations but not where the exact emergency was. Furthermore, there are other obvious benefits including performance monitoring, live management and location monitoring of deployed ambulances, and even functions that would allow to pre-deploy ambulances at high risk areas based on previous data. However, the operation of the service was not what it was hoped for, more specifically the subsequent investigation report states that general imperfections included failure to identify all duplicated calls, lack of prioritization of exception messages, exception messages and awaiting attention queues scrolling off the top of the allocator's rectifier screens, software resource allocation errors, general robustness of the system including workstation lockups, slow response times for certain screen-based activities, and inaccuracies over the location of dispatched crews. Lack of understanding of how the system contributed to these imperfections resulted in guidance offered to operators to reboot their systems in case they crashed. A paper by Anthony Filkenstein mentions that the entire system descended in chaos, with one ambulance arriving to find the patient dead and taken away by undertakers, and another ambulance answered the stroke call after 11 hours, five hours after the patient had made their own way to the hospital. The computer-aided dispatch system was partly removed and aspects of its function, notably dispatch decisions, were performed manually. However, it is worth noticing that the part-manual system seized up completely eight days later. A number of issues have been highlighted as contributing factors to this failure. Examples include claims that the London Ambulance Service chiefs ignore what amounted to an over-ambitious project timetable. The project being open to public tender with main focus on price without considering how quality could be safeguarded. Insufficient familiarization and training of the personnel with the system. The management of the project was inadequate, the project team failing to use the PRINCE project management method as prescribed for public sector projects. And the software was incomplete and unstable, in particular the emergency backup system remained untested. Also. A common criticism in literature is the way the system was procured. As a result of the advertisement, 35 companies expressed an interest in providing all or part of the system. Each of these companies was sent an outline requirement specification and was offered the full specification if they were still interested. Over the following weeks, several meetings were held with prospective suppliers covering queries on the full specification and resolving other potential technical and contractual issues. These meetings were minuted by the project team, and it is clear that most of the suppliers raised concerns over the proposed timetable. They were all told that this timetable was non-negotiable. Tightness of the timetable is a recurring contributing factor to the failure of the the project. The reason of this tightness was that the London Ambulance Service was nowhere near the response standards, and that the new board saw computer-aided dispatch as the solution to their problems. Following discussions with prospective suppliers, 17 suppliers provided full proposals for all or part of the system. These proposals were reviewed in detail by the selection team. The investigation report suggests that there is reasonable evidence of a thorough review against the list of set criteria. However, it is evident from the actual process that no proposal made the shortlist if the timetable could not be met. Eventually, only one out of the 17 bids managed to meet all criteria. At this point one could think that either that one was particularly good or they had missed something. The decision lies with you. Retrospectively, it was realized that other well-known manufacturers were rejected and that the selected consortium was led by a relatively small company. The lessons learned and mentioned in the investigation report covered technical as well as social aspects of engineering. The investigation report concludes that any future computer aid dispatch system must conform to the following imperatives. 1. It must be fully reliable and resilient with fully tested levels of backup. 2. It must have total ownership by management and staff, both within central ambulance control and the ambulance crews. 3. It must be developed and introduced in a time scale which, whilst reco- recognizing the need for earliest introduction, must allow fully for consultation, quality assurance testing and training. 4. Management and staff must have total, demonstrable confidence in the reliability of the system. 5. The new system must contribute to improving the level and quality of the provision of ambulance services in the capital. 6. Any new system should be introduced in a stepwise approach with, where possible, the steps giving maximum benefit being introduced first. 7. Any investment in the current system should be protected and carried forward to the new system only if it results in no compromises to the above objectives. Even though the London ambulance service case is an example of obvious technical failings, more importantly it highlights the managerial decisions that can affect safety and how despite the failings of a manufacturer, the operator also bears responsibility and needs to use appropriate safety frameworks with which to contract safety-critical IT systems. Recently, the term connected health has seen prominence. Connected health encompasses a wide variety of technologies that can improve delivered healthcare both in terms of quality as well as cost. The main philosophy behind this approach is the interaction and collaboration of many systems during the care of a patient. These systems range from directly applied physiological monitoring, for example body sensors, general sensing within the environment, for example wireless sensor networks, robot surgery, networked medical devices in hospitals and linked health informatics, for example electronic health records. Imagine for example visiting your doctor. The doctor downloads your medical record from the database. However, this happens after you authorize them to do so using the NFC chip of your mobile phone to allow the doctor to decrypt your record with a passkey, providing them with accurate information about previous conditions, how they were treated, and whether you had any side effects. The doctor examines your symptoms and decides on a diagnosis, and checks on their systems for any less common causes for this same set of symptoms as well as commonly used treatments that are known to be effective. Instead of a paper prescription, the doctor will transmit a digital prescription to your mobile phone, which will be transferred again by you to the pharmacist, who will then give you your treatment. The fancy features and functions do not end there. Your mobile phone will then know when you should receive your treatment and will offer you reminders and it will even check by scanning the barcode of the drugs box or even identify the correct pills themselves using the camera. If not enough, even more fancy features could be added, which will use a number of Bluetooth, perhaps, sensors, to detect how are you responding to the treatment, for example, by monitoring your heart rate, blood pressure, or even by doing on-the-spot blood analysis. The software will then compare your body's response to the treatment with the expected response. And if they're different, it will advise you to revisit your doctor or even call the ambulance service for you. This scenario may not be that far away. Several of the mentioned functions are readily available, although they may not be fully integrated as described. The functions described in that scenario are not only fancy features offering little other usefulness. All stages of this journey through the health system provide opportunities for mistakes that may threaten the safety of the patient. The patient's health record may be out of date, missing information about the previous condition or side effect, either deliberately because everybody lies, or simply because you may have been treated in a different organisation which has not updated your record with that particular incident. Further issues may include the doctor making the wrong diagnosis or treatment protocol because they did not think of a particular rare combination of symptoms or were not up to date with recent treatment protocols or warnings about effectiveness or side effects of specific drugs. More opportunities for problems can be introduced while at the pharmacist and then at your home, forgetting to take your pills, taking the wrong ones, the wrong dosage or failing to realize that the treatment is not working. By this time, you probably have also started thinking about the problems that can be caused by the systems and software themselves. Firstly, the entire scenario assumes that the user will be able to understand how their mobile works and capable to operate functions such as using their NFC chip or Bluetooth connection. But let's assume that technology literacy is increasing and most people in the near future will be able to access and use their devices efficiently. A second assumption is that the mobile will be able to communicate with other systems either by connecting to a Wi-Fi or the data network, which even in the current fourth generation of mobile networks sounds like a leap of faith. There are further issues that have to do more with technical aspects of the systems, such as making sure that your health record is accurate and is transmitted correctly, the doctor systems are up to date with the most recent treatment protocols and warnings, and the mobile and the sensors and application running on it will run without crashing and will offer the correct functionality. With current systems and software, we can hardly be assured that all the previously mentioned will operate as intended. Most of you have probably experienced a mobile application crashing after an update of the application or the operating system of the mobile. But even if you perceive that a particular combination of hardware and software will operate as intended, you will probably need more guarantees about their safe use. After all, it's your life that you rely on them working correctly. Even if you do not have the technical background to make such judgment, you will probably expect the regulator to make sure that what gets to you will be safe. So at this stage, I would like to wish whoever will be charged with the task of getting software application developers and consumer electronic manufacturers to agree on their respective responsibilities, good luck and lots of patience. So what should we do? Going for more high tech options provides benefits, but also obstacles that, depending on your faith in technology, may appear unsurmountable or just challenging. Is more technology better and why? Connected health systems can improve the healthcare of acute and recurring conditions, as well as improve the prediction of more sensitive groups before symptoms. For example, they can provide health care in the home, where devices control or monitor the giving of drugs, for example implantable drug delivery systems. They can check for hazards, for example someone having fallen, o- fallen over, slipped into a coma or having forgotten to turn off a cooker. They can establish behavioural patterns, for example to detect early onset dementia or for rural areas to avoid costly trips to hospital for example, provide a doctor your physiological data and allow consultations via video. In a clinical setting, such systems will include diagnostic, prescription and drug checks, more accurate patient records, clinical patient management systems, digitization of test results and imaging diagnostic methods such as X-rays and MRIs. If you watch any TV shows set in hospitals. You may have noticed how in more recent seasons doctors have started using tablets, something that represents the future and in some cases existing practice accurately enough, at least for a TV show. All these features result in improvement of the delivered healthcare, both in terms of reducing the risk of hazards as well as in terms of other attributes, such as the timeliness and effectiveness of the delivered healthcare. The U.S. Institute of Medicine, Committee on the Quality of Healthcare in America have published a very interesting book on the subject title, To Err is Human, Building a Safer Health System, which I would recommend to everyone interested. From a technical point of view, such systems will need to collaborate, despite having been developed independently by different developers and used by different operators. Connected systems will need not only to communicate in a way that they understand each other, but also to be able to improve healthcare, by offering to health professionals new capabilities as a system of systems. For those of you not familiar with the term, we characterize as systems of systems those systems that exhibit a combination of attributes such as high complexity, heterogeneity and heavy reliance on communications. But I will leave the further discussion on the subject for the future. The way these systems are expected to operate exacerbates concerns such as safety, security and information governance. Assurance is needed about the dependable operation of connected health systems in terms of these attributes. The Caldigot Report appreciates these concerns and it offers an independent review of how information about patients is shared across the healthcare systems, stipulating a number of principles and making a number of recommendations. A quick search on the web will also provide you with numerous articles about the public's concerns over privacy of information in the NHS. And if you're still not convinced about the trade-offs of healthcare-enhancing features and other concerns such as security and privacy, I would like to quote an article by the register.co.uk. The article is titled, Insulin Pump Hack Delivers Fatal Dosage Over the Air. According to the article, in a hack fitting of a James Bond movie, A security researcher has devised an attack that hijacks nearby insulin pumps, enabling him to surreptitiously deliver fatal doses to diabetic patients. The article continues that Jack's, uh, that is the name of the researcher, Jack's latest hack works on certain insulin pumps because they contain tiny radio transmitters that allow patients and doctors to adjust their functions. This is not an isolated concern. Another article on the BBC discusses how a patient's trust in medical devices may be compromised if the manufacturer does not release the software code for review. Both articles make an interesting read and are available in this episode's notes. By now, you should be wondering what we can do about all these. Should we just accept technology and its drawbacks, but also its benefits? In healthcare, the benefits of technology are indubitable. But this should not be the way we treat technology. Although in many cases the benefits are obvious, we need to strive for a systematic framework to example potential risks and benefits and make informed decisions with sufficient certainty. Compared to other domains, such as aerospace, healthcare is not equally mature to collect this kind of data and to make decisions with the same degree of certainty. And even if we agree about the overwhelming benefits of a system over the introduced risks, we still need to understand whether these risks are unnecessarily present and how we can reduce them. Imagine a system that offers a significant clinical benefit, but also introduces a risk with which we can live, but which risk could be further reduced if the manufacturer spent uh, one month's of effort to introduce a check in the software. Would we want to implement this risk control? But first, we need to be aware of it, by actively looking for it. The ECRI Institute released the top 10 health technology hazards for 2014. It describes safety issues resulting from the following 10 technologies in the healthcare domain. 1. Alarm hazards 2. Infusion pump medication errors 3. CT radiation exposure in paediatric patients 4. Data integrity failures in EHRs and other health IIT systems. 5. Occupational radiation hazards in hybrid operating rooms. 6. Inadequate reprocessing of endoscopes and surgical instruments. 7. Neglecting change management for network devices and systems. 8. Risks to pediatric patients from adult technologies. 9 robotic surgery complications due to insufficient training and 10. Retained devices and unretrieved fragments. The healthcare domain is catching up fast with regard to safety with other domains. A number of safety standards in the medical domain have seen prominence in many countries including the US and the EU that cover the safety of medical devices as well as health IT systems. In the UK in particular, the NHS has published two standards, ISB 0129 and ISB 0160. These are addressed to manufacturers and operators such as hospitals respectively. The standards also ask for a structured approach to safety, also placing the onus of safety justification on manufacturers and operators. Specifically, the standards ask for a safety case. A safety case is an argument supported by evidence explaining why a system is safe. We use it as a means of providing assurance for health IT systems. The US FDA have also started using safety cases for devices such as infusion pumps. The connected health philosophy needs to bring together professionals from the IT, systems and safety engineering and healthcare domains. This is necessary in order to understand how the connected systems need to work, how they can improve the quality of the delivered healthcare, and how they can be dependably and safely deployed in day-to-day operations. Lessons learned from early advances in the field can be used to further converge the practice in healthcare system safety.
0: That's it for this episode of DisasterCast do check out the webpage at disastercast.co.uk where you can find episode transcripts and links to further reading. If you have a particular topic you'd like covered, or if you'd like to present a topic yourself, you can contact me via the webpage. A big thank you, of course, to George for his work in putting together today's show. Please take a moment to tweet or email your own appreciation. I'll put links to George's contact details and his blog on the webpage. If you're listening to this shortly after release, the next episode will be out on the 3rd of December.